0: Uh, what we've seen since then is a, a huge explosion of uh, interest and insight, entrepreneurship and development in this space, which I think has accelerated, if anything, our projections on what this technology could mean for the world.
1: Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. On this week's episode, we're pleased to welcome Alex Tapscott back to the podcast to talk about unlocking the blockchain Among the topics we'll discuss are how far blockchain technology has come in just a few short years, what other companies may be able to learn from how a company called Consensus organizes its teams, and why, if the first wave of the internet represented the internet of information, the blockchain just may represent the internet of value. The last time Alex joined us on the podcast was a little under two years ago when the book he co wrote with his father, Don, had just been published. That book is called Blockchain Revolution, How the Technology Behind Bitcoin is Changing Money, Business, and the World. The world has indeed changed quite a bit since the book was first published, and we're looking forward to digging in. Along with his father, Don, Alex is the founder of the Blockchain Research Institute. In 2014, he wrote the seminal Report on Governing Digital Currencies for the Global Solutions Network Program at the Joseph L. Rotman School of Management, At the University of Toronto. Welcome back to the podcast, Alex. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So it's been almost two years since the last time we spoke. Other than the price of Bitcoin and Ethereum, what has changed in the world of blockchain over the course of the last two years that listeners should know about?
0: Well, everything. Honestly, <laughs> um, when, when we first started writing the book in 2015, uh, blockchain technology was emerging as this um, catch-all phrase to describe uh, a powerful new wave of technologies. Uh, the most well-known, of course, being the cryptocurrency uh, Bitcoin, but outside of what I would call a dedicated group of uh, technologists and entrepreneurs and increasingly some tech-savvy people in business and government, very few regular people really knew about this stuff or understood why they should care. And Blockchain Revolution, the book which we set out to write in 2015 and was released in May of 2016, uh, sought to answer those questions and explain why the technology was going to have a big impact on the world. Uh, What we've seen since then is uh, a huge explosion of uh, interest and insight, uh, entrepreneurship and development in this space, which I think has accelerated, if anything, our projections on what this technology could mean for the world. Um, you mentioned the price of Bitcoin. You know, The price of these assets is a function of their underlying utility, I think. And so the fact that the value of the whole ecosystem has grown from around 5 or $6 billion, the last time we t- spoke, to about almost $500 billion today, is evidence that there's something real going on. Um, to be sure, there's lots of speculation, and many of these new technologies will, will, will fail. Um, But what's going to emerge from this is the next generation of the internet. And that's what's super exciting for us.
1: Yeah. And the last time we spoke, you said something that stuck with me. The first wave of the internet represented the internet of information. The blockchain will come to represent what we know as the internet of value. Can you explain for listeners who may have missed that episode what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you use the internet today to send and move and share information, you're not actually sending an original unique thing. You're sending a copy and you're retaining an original. Now, for most kinds of information, that's okay. In fact, it's one of the big benefits of the internet. So um, if you, you know, host this podcast on the iTunes store, anybody can listen to it. If I send you an email, I can send the same email to anybody else. If I put an entry into Wikipedia, it's available for all to see. So it's kind of like we have our own printing press for information, and it's had a really positive and profound impact on a lot of people's lives. Except when it comes to things that have value, things like, say, money or financial assets, like, I don't know, stocks or bonds. Being able to send or sell a copy of something is a really bad idea. You know, if I owe you 10 bucks for something and I send it to you, it's important that when you've got it, you know that I don't still have a copy. Because if I had a copy, then the money would be worthless. So we've always had to rely on intermediaries to sit between parties and transactions involving things that have value. And with blockchain, we don't. Basically, blockchain is the first digital medium for value in the same way that the internet was the first digital medium for information. So two or more parties can transact and move value uh, peer-to-peer without the need for a central third party. And that is going to have big impacts Uh, on many different industries, obviously financial services being one that it's already beginning to impact in profound ways, uh, which I'll discuss later on, Um, but also other kinds of industries where centralization has created network effects for platforms, companies like Amazon or Facebook or Google. Um, Now we have uh, new decentralized systems that allow people to, you know, create value uh, in ways that don't necessarily require that third party. And that's uh, a big shift. So Where will it end? Who knows? I mean, the Internet of Information, frankly, I still think is in its early days. You know, this is not the eighth inning for the Internet, and it's certainly not late in the blockchain space. I think we're only just beginning.
1: Okay, got it. So we'll come back to the financial services space in a second. But I want to ask, one company that you write about in Blockchain Revolution at length is Consensus, And one of the most interesting things about that section, I felt like, was how teams are arranged and how people work at Consensus. Can you describe for listeners what that work environment is like?
0: Well, I don't work there, so I can't talk about uh, <laughs> what, what's said by the water cooler or anything like that. Sure. Um, but um, what I can say is that the, the founder of Consensus is a guy by the name of Joseph Lubin. His goal essentially is to build uh, decentralized applications using blockchain technology, mostly focused on a platform called Ethereum. And what the... the decentralizing technology blockchain allows for, for many different parties spread spread out to come together and build value, I think was the same approach he wanted to take to his organization. So it's a very decentralized organization. Um, There is a central hub, which sets the direction of what many of the people in that company do. But a lot of individuals and teams are free to uh, innovate and and, um, invent and in ways that probably would not be typical in your average organization. When we wrote the book Blockchain Revolution, we visited the offices of consensus uh, around the time that Ethereum was first launched to the world in what's called the creation of the Genesis block. It was in a room about as big as a walk-in closet with four people. Uh, but on, the, um, on Slack and on uh, Telegram and on other platforms, we were connected to dozens of people around the world who were also part of the consensus organism. What's happened since then now is that I think, I I don't know the exact number, but consensus has grown into a team of many hundreds of people. They've originated new companies that each potentially promised to transform, you know, different industries. Uh, They've become the the leading uh, thinkers in the space when it comes to how to build Ethereum-based applications for the enterprise. And they've become this enormously um, influential and and, uh, valuable organization Uh, being built in a way that a lot of people would view as being very non-conformist and non-conventional.
1: Okay, and going back to financial services, there's a chapter in the book called Reinventing Financial Services that talks about how blockchain will alleviate some of the pains that existed when the book was written, and I assume still do today. One of those pains is around just the cost of moving money and the time it takes to do so. How did the financial system get to be so technologically arcane, and how can blockchain help fix
0: that? Well, it wasn't always arcane. At one point, it was incredibly advanced. Um, the only problem is that it just hasn't been updated in 40 years. So, technologies that date from the 1970s still help a lot of the industry uh, operate and run. Um, you know, when you go to the store and pay with a credit card, uh, it's not that the value is traveling across the Visa network from you to the merchant. It's actually uh, a process that involves more than a half a dozen intermediaries, your bank, their bank, a payment processor risk management or identity company, the Visa network, the automated clearinghouse system if you're in the United States, uh, which was built in the 1970s. And the value takes days to settle and costs the merchants, you know, a few percent. And what's interesting about the industry today is that, you know, the front end is digital in the sense that you tap your card on the card reader and it feels like the payment's being completed. But what's happening behind the scenes is this Rube Goldberg machine-like process. So it's kind of like digital wallpaper on an old house. Um, What blockchain promises to do is basically rebuild the house to change the plumbing of how we move and store value in the world. So one of the most interesting areas where this is proving very disruptive is actually on the uh, capital market side of of, uh, the financial services industry. So the way it used to work is if you were a company, a startup, you would raise seed capital, angel financing, then you would do a series A or a series B or a series C, and then eventually, if you didn't go bankrupt, you'd uh, go public. And uh, that was something that happened later in the maturity of an organization. Um, What's happened with blockchain is something very different, where a lot of new entrepreneurs are choosing to skip a lot of those steps and instead are issuing uh, tokens that represent value in what they're building. It could mean the right to use the technology, access to the network, or even a share in a company, uh, to a global market of tens of thousands or or more people. And uh, they're raising large sums of money peer-to-peer. And this market has uh, since been dubbed the ICO market, in the book, we called it the global blockchain IPO, which uh, probably more accurate, but definitely more wordy. Yeah. Anyway, this has had a huge impact on, on how entrepreneurs access growth capital. And on one hand, it's a massively positive thing. You know, if you're an entrepreneur and Pakistan or if you're in Nigeria or wherever, you don't have to, you're no longer constrained by what's local. You don't have to go to the local venture capital community, even if there is one. Um, Instead, you can uh, tap into a global market that wants to fund your idea. So that's a good thing. Um, The bad side of it is that uh, what's happened is this uh, explosion of um, lower quality projects, which I think a lot of people mistake for higher quality projects, and what's going to happen is a lot of investors are going to be hurt. And so this uh, market has grown from $165 million in 2016 to over $3 billion in 2017, and it's focused the attention of a lot of regulators and other incumbents, such as the banks themselves, on what this means for the future. Now, I'm positive overall on this um, development And I think, as I said, it could help to lead to the halcyon days of entrepreneurship in a lot of ways. But on the other hand, it could be hugely harmful if people don't understand the risks or do their homework. And I think there's a role for regulators to play in that. But this is something that barely existed. When we wrote the book, I mean, when I when you and I spoke, the amount of money raised this way was probably twenty five million dollars, and eighteen million of it was for the Ethereum project. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Telegram, the messaging app, just announced the close of its eight hundred and fifty million U.S. dollar ICO, um, which was followed shortly thereafter by a sovereign country, Venezuela, announcing its own ICO for a thing called Petrocoin. Uh, they raised less than Telegram, which I think tells you a lot about uh, the market that people have more confidence in a private company than they do in a sovereign state. And uh, I could go on at at length about the problems I see in the Venezuelan example, but it's still a phenomenally bizarre and interesting thing that a country was considering using the blockchain to create a whole new version of its currency.
1: Let me ask a little more about that. I was listening to Fresh Air or something on NPR recently, and Bitcoin was the topic of conversation. One of the guests cited a country like Venezuela where inflation has completely skyrocketed. As a use case where Bitcoin can really be a force for good, the idea being if the currency there is essentially worthless, which it's becoming now, you can at least convert Bolivaris into Bitcoin and then buy things with Bitcoin.
0: Yeah. Well, the government of Venezuela claims that its new cryptocurrency, the petrodollar, can help alleviate some of the strain that's happened in the country from its devaluating currency and sanctions that have been placed on it. The truth is actually quite different, which is that replacing one centralized, worthless currency with another centralized currency, even if it's digital currency, is not that big of a fix. Um, Instead, what's happening in Venezuela, um, for the people who are fortunate enough to have access to digital technology, which is not everyone, they're seeing uh, Bitcoin and other decentralized cryptocurrencies as the potential solution, and so they should, um, because storing value in bitcoin for all its volatility is a heck of a lot better than storing it in a bolivar that uh, uh, that's value cuts in half on a daily or weekly basis Having the freedom to custody and control your own money is hugely liberating in a country where people feel like the long arm of the state is controlling everything and making their savings worthless. So to me, that's the more exciting story that's coming out of Venezuela, is the you know Bitcoin mining that's happening secretly, or the people spending and saving and storing and moving Bitcoin versus the creation of this new cryptocurrency. But the creation of the cryptocurrency speaks to another fascinating phenomenon, which is that excuse me, which is that a lot of people have talked about the value of a so-called digital fiat currency, a crypto fiat currency. And I think many, if any, um, thought that it would be created by, you know, the ECB or the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Japan or someone like it. Instead, what's happened is that the first mover was Venezuela. The second movers are probably going to be Iran and Russia. And so what you've got is basically rogue states um, using this technology to circumvent international law and regulations. Uh, which is an outcome that I certainly never predicted when we wrote the book, but it's nonetheless um, having a big impact.
1: So let me ask, there's no shortage of big names in the worlds of business or finance that seem ready to trash Bitcoin any chance they get. Jamie Dimon famously called it a fraud last year. Most recently, Charlie Younger of Berkshire Hathaway got in on the act. Do the traditional established players feel the same way about blockchain that they do about Bitcoin?
0: Well, I'll answer that question in a couple of ways. So, I think that there are a lot of people who are hostile to the concept of Bitcoin. And you mentioned um, Charlie Munger, uh, Munger, Munger. Uh, uh, did I mispronounce it? Joseph Stiglitz, Nouriel Roubini, for whatever that's worth, Jamie Dimon, et cetera. Um, you've got people who, in many respects, represent the old establishment, who see this technology as uh, something, you know, at, at best, uh, sort of a, a plaything that has no utility or value, and at worst, a... Uh, a fraud or, or something that's actually quite harmful. And uh, this is not a new phenomenon. You know, For as long as there have been technology shifts in our uh, world, and in our economy, um, people who represent the old paradigm have been difficult or slow to embrace the new. Uh, you know, There's uh, the saying that first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. So we're actually at the point where the leaders of the old paradigm are fighting back against this technology. The next stage is, of course, that you win. And uh, the example of Jamie Dimon is an interesting one because Mr. Diamond uh, said, I believe in the fall of last year that Bitcoin was a fraud, but walked the statement back at, um, uh, when, when posed the question in, in, uh, in January at Davos, he said, uh, I regret calling uh, Bitcoin a fraud and please, just please don't ask me about Bitcoin again. I just can't talk about it. Um, so, so that's an interesting concept in and of itself. In terms of the Bitcoin versus blockchain thing, you know, you can make the case that Bitcoin is not going to become a global reserve currency and that it may not replace payments in every part of the economy. You can easily make that claim with justification, but you can't really make the claim that Bitcoin is bad and blockchain is good. If you say that, that Bitcoin is bad and blockchain is good, you fail to really understand what the underlying blockchain represents, which is that it enables the digitization of money and of things that have value, like assets. And that Bitcoin is this pioneering example of it. Now, Bitcoin may and its blockchain may not prove to be the most valuable or the one with the most utility, but it is the, the one that blazed the trail and helped to set off this amazing you know, cre- creation of value in, in the blockchain space. Um, so I think to, to separate those two things uh, is not really credible nor logical and I think reveals someone's bias when they do that.
1: Okay, got it. And for someone who's maybe trying to like visualize where blockchain might fit into the traditional technology stack of a, a, of a product company, is it, would it be accurate to say that it, it like takes the place of, of the database?
0: Yeah, you can make the case that it takes the place of the database, the bank account, and other vendors that manage and handle value and assets, and that it will radically simplify the technology stack Uh, and radically simplify the value chain of most businesses. So when you say a product company, I'm not sure what what kind of product you're referring to, but you could say a company like Apple, for example, has this incredibly complicated, long uh, supply chain that uh, spreads around the world. And it's got a financial uh, infrastructure itself, which is arguably more complex and more arcane with money stored and patents and other intangibles stored all over the world. Um, Having um, Apple and its suppliers and its um, customers having one common set of, uh, records um, that they can base their assessments off of would help to simplify and reduce the uh, chance of error in that uh, value chain, and uh, that's something that we're seeing being tried out in any of number of companies. There are uh, companies like Merck, which is a big shipping company, or Walmart, which has itself got a huge supply chain and also the biggest grocer in the world, um, looking to use this block using looking to use this technology to uh, reduce the chances of fraud of corruption, of value being lost, and importantly, of friction in in, uh, in their value chains. So when people talk about blockchain, um, or when they did originally, it was first about Bitcoin, then it was about financial services. And I think what people are beginning, beginning to realize is that this is a general purpose technology, similar to the internet, for example, or the PC or the smartphone, that is going to have an impact on every single industry. Um, it's not about fintech, it's about all tech. And uh, technology's having an impact on everything.
1: So for established players in financial services, do you think there's a little bit of not-invented-here syndrome? So, you know, for an industry where what passes for innovation on the consumer side, at least, is being able to take a picture of your check to deposit it in your checking account, you think they might be more focused on the potential upside than the downside?
0: Yeah, well, I think when it comes to a lot of established industries, most things are not invented there. And that's just the nature of innovation. It's the innovator's dilemma, which is that when you've got a big... A market or a big segment of a market to protect, you're not going to try and disrupt yourself because uh, the trade-off um, from a manager's perspective is to protect the revenue you have, not to uh, try and chase the revenue that you don't. Um, and I think that's led to a lack of innovation in a lot of industries, including financial services. Um, I remember when the the innovation of being able to take a photo of your check first appeared and uh, I asked someone who worked in a bank, I said, you know, this is more convenient than, than before, but it also kind of seems like a stopgap, like you're just trying to weld some new technology onto an old technology. And they explained to me that actually doing that's incredibly complicated. That in their bank, that data has to hit 125 different points before it actually settles in your account. Um, which to me speaks more to the underlying infrastructure of the industry than anything else. So there's no reason why I can't, you know, if I take in money from a you know an invoice or something like that that it can't be processed digitally on the blockchain in a cryptocurrency or in some other kind of uh, asset. And in terms of the downside and the upside, yeah, when it comes to financial services, I think people, broadly speaking, fall into three camps. You know, the first camp are the ones who don't understand it or think it's not valuable and so are prepared to ignore it. I would not recommend that approach. Um, The second are those who see this as an opportunity to cut huge costs out of their organization. You know, banks and other third parties themselves rely on lots of other third parties uh, to make their businesses work. So being able to reduce the friction and complexity of their own business is an opportunity for them. And you see examples like this pop up where, you know, a consulting company or a tech company will say that blockchain can cut X amount of dollars from whatever business unit. And I think that's fine. And I think it's okay to focus on areas where you can make things work more efficiently. But if you only focus on areas where um, technology can change how your business is done today, you're going to basically miss how it's going to transform your business tomorrow um, you know what? What value is there for a bank or an exchange, stock exchange, to use this technology to process and clear transactions more quickly when those transactions are never going to go through the bank in the future to begin with? Um, you know, there's no reason why, when you trade in a financial asset, that you need to have brokers and custodians and clearing houses and agents and exchanges when these assets can and should be moved to peer to peer. So the best way for you know leaders of the old paradigm and th- finance to think about this and this probably applies to to everybody it's basically just to say okay how is this technology going to change the way my industry works in the future and what opportunities does it create to build new products and services that were impossible to me before and i think that's the best way to look at it and uh, the ones that are thinking that way i think the ones are going to be successful so i
1: may have asked you this last time but I, i don't think so In the early days of the internet, I think a lot of people would have thought that, you know, you were crazy to say there will come a time where pretty much any business has its own website. Do you think that in, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it may be, basically any company transacting business will be, I don't know if the question is, will need to have their own blockchain or or will need to be connected to the blockchain. But do you see it being just like it's something you have to have like today, a website is something a company basically has to have?
0: Yeah, I mean, if not a website, then an internet presence of some kind, right, through a mobile app or something like that. I mean, I think, I think the, that is true, that, but not that everyone's going to need their own blockchain. That's kind of like saying everyone's going to need their own internet. Um, I, think, I think more likely what's going to occur is that um, companies will be connected to a network of blockchains, um, that much of their business will operate using that technology, and that regardless of what industry you're in, you need to be prepared for this stuff. Um, the question of, you know, everyone needing their own blockchain Uh, is an interesting one because we are seeing the creation of new platform technologies to rival the likes of uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin, which are the two biggest. Um, But we're not going to see millions of blockchains. What's more likely to occur is that a bunch of, call a handful of different platforms will achieve scale um, that uh, forces them to become standards and then interoperating between them will be the most important thing. And I think that's an interesting sort of point too, which is that you know, right now, things are extremely early stage in this industry. And even two years after writing the book, you know, we are still in the very early days. And uh, whether or not Ethereum is going to be, you know, the new Internet of Value or something else is actually remains to be seen. They've certainly got a, a lead on, on others, but they've got lots of uh, issues that need to be resolved as well. So um, if, if you're listening to this podcast and, you know, you're in a position in an organization or you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to understand how to use this technology, you need to keep an open mind. Um, but the most important thing you need to do is, is start now because things are happening faster this go around than they did the last.
1: Okay, got it. And and resources for folks that want to get that want to learn more. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. It's called Blockchain Revolution. Uh, you're the founder of the Blockchain Research Institute. Folks can check that out. Uh, wh- where else would you point people if they uh, if they you know are itching to get started uh, and and, and want to know more?
0: It's a great question. There are a few places that I would go to start off. First of all, there are other books. I would read The Age of Cryptocurrency and The Truth Machine, uh, which are two books by um, Paul Venia and Michael Casey. And uh, that's, I think they, they've done a really good job um, adding to it. Obviously, I would suggest my own book. And uh, I would tell people to keep their eyes peeled for a new edition um, of the book, which we hope to have released this year. In terms of general resources, there's a, a venture capital firm called Andreessen Horowitz, a16Z, uh, they've got a massive compendium of crypto and blockchain-related stuff, which is really interesting. Um, if you're more focused on Bitcoin and what that means, there's actually um, a, a sort of an early adopter, a guy named Jameson Lopp, who's got uh, his own site, Lopp.net, L-O-P-P.net slash Bitcoin, and that's a huge resource for stuff as well. And the other thing I do is just put a Google notification on for a few key topics in this industry and just watch what comes in. Um, there's really an amazing flood of information that's happening in the space.
1: Okay, and let me ask you one more question. The last time you were on, we talked about the concept of DApps or decentralized applications and how DApps could disrupt even the most disruptive of companies, like an Airbnb. Have you have we seen any instances of that playing out in the time since the book was published?
0: Well, in many ways we have, but in other ways I think we haven't reached the, the point that we talked about in the book where these companies, these incumbents are being seriously pressured. Um, there's a, there's a, a project called Arcade City, which is furthest along of any on the distributed ride-hailing and ride-sharing um, application side of things. Um, there are some other companies as well that are looking to decentralize other kinds of industries. So um, there's a project called Filecoin, another one called Gollum that uh, we're doing this for uh, file storage and and processing online. So basically their argument is that, um, you know, there's more latent computing power and storage space in all of the connected smartphones in the world. So can we decentralize uh, the cloud um, and put Amazon Web Services out of business? And uh, yeah, it's a huge opportunity. Uh, Hasn't scaled yet, remains to be seen. But these are the kinds of opportunities that are being created right now.
1: Okay, nice. Well, Alex, thanks so much for joining us again. Great talking with you uh, about the book once more. Look forward to the new edition of it coming out later this year, uh, and uh, and thanks for helping us unlock the blockchain as always.
0: My pleasure, Will. Thanks again.
1: Absolutely. The Innovation Engine Podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www dot threepillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and we post extensive show notes for each episode on the Three Pillar website at threepillarglobal.com/slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Don't forget we also have an iOS app for the innovation engine. Search for the innovation engine on the App Store from your iOS devices. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often, who listens to it? We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the Innovation Engine a little bit better, Please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.sherlin at threepillarglobal.com is my email address. Also feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.